very long time. What is your verdict? Find the defendant guilty. The deadly narcotic. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, you've got to get a hold of yourself. You're listening to Law Talking, an independent podcast brought to you by Greenway Chambers. In this episode, Frank Hicks discusses recent events, particularly the new Design and Building Practitioners Act 2020 and recent decisions of the U.S. Supreme Court concerning sex discrimination and the rights of undocumented immigrants. Ingmar Taylor, Jamie Darrams and Lucy Saunders address one of the principal legal issues that has arisen in employment law due to COVID-19. When and in what circumstances can an employer stand down an employee under the provisions of the Fair Work Act? Lastly, Frank Hicks discusses his trip to the ashes in 2019 with Ian Roberts. Please be aware the first segment of this episode includes discussion of sexual harassment which some listeners may find distressing. Hello, this is Frank Hicks. In this uh, introductory segment, we're just going to look at some current affairs that have occurred in the last month or so. The first I'd like to mention is the passing of the Design Building Practitioners Act, which is a comprehensive response by the New South Wales legislation to the problem of defects in building works arising from inadequate design and construction error. The regime established by the Act requires the registration of design and building practitioners, compliance declarations in respect of design services and building works, and that insurance be held by those design and building practitioners. Specific provisions have been enacted covering engineering and specialist work, and the Act also establishes a process of investigation and disciplinary action, as well as a code of offences and remedies in respect of the matters covered by the legislation. Perhaps most importantly, it prescribes a statutory duty for construction work, which also provides an additional cause of action to owners who have suffered economic loss as a consequence of defects within building works, and this statutory duty is retrospective and covers economic loss that first became apparent within 10 years immediately before the commencement of Section 37 in June 2020. Myself and Fahim Anwar will be presenting a detailed CPD on this legislation in the next few days in July of 2020, and we hope you can join us online for that webinar. The second thing I just wanted to mention is the speed with which the New South Wales Court of Appeal seems to be dealing with matters these days. Most recently, in the context of the Black Lives Matter protest, the Court of Appeal was able to deal with an an appeal from a decision at first instance by His Honour Justice Fagan and determine the legality of that protest a matter of minutes before it was supposed to commence and less than 24 hours since the judgment had been delivered by His Honour Justice Fagan. It's truly an impressive piece of efficiency on the part of our highest court here in New South Wales. The third thing that I wanted to refer to is a couple of very interesting decisions out of the United States Supreme Court. The first of Department of Homeland Security and Regents of the University of California, which concerned the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals or DACA Executive Order passed by the Obama administration. It had sought to be reversed and substantially gutted by the Trump administration. And in a 5-4 decision written by the Chief Justice, Justice Roberts, it was held that the implementation of the Trump executive order was unlawful given the way in which it had been sought to be executed, such that the executive order of the Obama administration remained in effect. So protecting those persons covered by the DACA order, uh, the so-called DREAMers. The third, or sorry, the second decision, I should say, is that of Bostock and Clayton County, which was a very interesting ruling 
6-3 in favour of extending the protections of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which prohibits discrimination, quote, because of sex, end quote, to gay and trans people. The contest in this regard was whether the intention of the legislatures, legislators, I should say, who almost certainly would not have conceived of any protections being extended to gay or trans people, should be preferred to the text of the legislation, which in current circumstances it was construed could protect such persons. In the end, as I say, by a 6-3 majority written by Justice Gorsuch, it was held that the text trumped, uh, no pun intended, the intention of the legislators. And even if they didn't mean to extend these protections to preclude discrimination because of sex to uh, these categories of people, to put it that way, uh, nonetheless, they were protected because uh, on its proper construction, the text did provide such protections to gay and trans people. Naturally enough, the squeals of outrage and horror from the Conservatives who, through gritted teeth, have stuck with Trump because of the benefits of judicial appointments have been heard loud and clear across the conservative sphere and silos that one can find on the internet. And lastly, of course, we've been all uh, dealing with the fallout from the findings of the High Court investigation into the conduct of Justice Dyson Hayden. And obviously there are significant questions that are yet to be answered and Justice Hayden has denied all allegations categorically. But it is worth, I think, reminding ourselves of the text of the statement issued by the Chief Justice Susan Keifel about these matters. And that text that can be found on the High Court website states that the investigation found that six former court staff members who were judges' associates were harassed by the former Justice Dyson Hayden. The findings are of extreme concern and that the justices of the High Court were ashamed that this had happened in the High Court of Australia. Sincere apologies were made to the six women whose complaints were borne out and an independent investigation made a series of recommendations, all of which have been adopted and acted upon by the High Court. Obviously, there is a significant way to go with these investigations and where things are going to finish, but at the moment, I don't think anyone can put it better than Chief Justice Susan Keifel has with regards to these matters and the position that has been taken following the comprehensive investigation that was completed. So that's what's been happening in the last little while uh, over the month of June since our previous podcast. Hope that you can stick with us for a couple of very interesting segments that we've got coming up. Take care and catch you next time. Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? Hi, it's Jamie Darrams from Greenway Chambers here. I'm with Inmar Taylor of Senior Counsel and Lucy Saunders, also of Greenway Chambers. We're here today to talk about the recent decision out of the Fair Work Commission in the matter of Gupta versus, um, I'll just use the generic term, Uber Eats, a decision related to whether Ms Gupta could advance an unfair dismissal case, which would turn primarily on whether she was an employee of the Uber Eats platform. It was found against her at first instance and she appealed to the full bench of the commission consisting of the president, the Vice President Hatcher and Deputy President Coleman. And the decision came down and perhaps it's just another example of the question that the Commission has to determine commonly whether a person is a, properly engaged as an employee or a contractor. 
So in that respect, it's not groundbreaking other than it being another one in the gig economy. But there are some matters that came out of that might have some consequences going forward. Ingmar, did you have a view on? Yeah, well, I think one of the things this case threw up, which is different to the usual, is the person, the employee or a contractor. You know, those cases come up with people like cleaners and, and so forth. They're being paid by the hour. They then are dismissed. Can they bring a dismissal? Are they an employee? Or um, for that matter, um, they've been paid $10 an hour and the award for cleaning is $20 an hour and they can only get the award rate if they're employees. So those cases, as you say, they come up from time to time. And Ms Gupta was saying that she was an employee, not a, a contractor. But Uber had, a, had an argument which said, well, you don't even get to that question because we don't actually contract with you to do work. And you have to at least have that before you can be seen to be either an employee or a contractor of ours. And they pointed to, as the decision makes clear, the nature of the contract. So the way Uber contends it works is that they all they do is develop an app. And Ms Gupta uh, indicates through the app that she's available for restaurants to engage her to deliver food. And a restaurant, in turn registers with the app to indicate to anyone who wants to order food that they're available to have food made and customers then have their version of the app and order food and Uber says that what happens then is the customer enters into a contract with the restaurant through the app for food to be delivered to it and simultaneously Ms Gupta is given the opportunity to take a request from the restaurant to enter into a contract with it to deliver and so there is no requirement by Uber for her to do any work for Uber. She's doing work for the restaurant. Now, one of the interesting things about this case is that that argument in the majority view, the the common dissenters, was failed, that Uber was found to itself be entering into a contract for work to be done. Now, the next limb Ms Gupta failed They said it was a contract for work to be done, but it wasn't an employment contract. Now, just before we come to the potential consequences of of that first thing, let's have a think. What were the reasons why she wasn't an employee? Well, there were three essential reasons why the majority um, found that she wasn't an employee. The first is the one that's commonly cited, and that is that it was said that Uber Eats didn't exercise the requisite degree of control over the work that was being undertaken by Miss Gupta. They identified in that respect the fact that Miss Gupta could determine when she logged on to the app, when she logged off on the app. If she was offered a, a delivery, she could reject it, she could accept it, then reject it. The other ground cited, or the other of the three, was that even when she was performing work, Miss Gupta wasn't restricted in only doing work for Uber Eats at that time so that she could accept work from other delivery apps. So, for instance, the other ones out there, Menulog or the like. And the third matter that they relied upon was that Miss Gupta wasn't presented as what they call the emanation of the business of Uber Eats. So she wasn't wearing any uniform or she didn't have any insignias on her car or anything like that. So In effect, she wasn't an emanation of the Uber Eats business. Now, these are, in my experience in these cases, are the usual types of things that tribunals and courts look for in determining that fundamental question of whether someone's an employee or not. And they were the ones that seemed to be important for the full bench in this case. And the minority decision of Deputy President Coleman, he accepted those as well, but he also gave some other reasons because he came down slightly differently 
and picked up on the point that he found there was no obligation to do any work for Uber Eats, picking up the point that you had identified, mm -hmm. Ingmar, so that one didn't even get to the fundamental proposition of the employment relationship, the wages mm -hmm. work bargain. I find that an interesting part of the judgment. It's similar to a decision or an observation or some comments of Justice McDougall over 15 years ago in a four-staff case where he had to discuss this proposition of whether under the Australian employment law system, you're either an employee or you're an independent contractor and there's no difference in between. Deputy President Coleman, his findings effectively, well, not an employee, not an independent contractor, but just work for herself, in effect. Yeah, he yeah. He doesn't explain really what that third category is meant to be, though. I mean, independent contractors used as a shorthand yeah. for people who have a contract of some kind with a business to perform some kind of service. It's just used conveniently and differently through different pieces of legislation. It's hard to see how someone who clearly does have a contractual arrangement of some kind with Uber is not an independent contractor, at least for some purposes. Now, the, the majority, as part of their first answering that first question identified earlier, came to the view that Ms Gupta was not conducting a business in her own right. Mm -hmm. And as they say, there's then somewhat of a tension between that conclusion and the conclusion that nevertheless, she's an independent contractor because there's a number of cases which go down the lines at the point where you're not conducting your own business, you are conducting someone else's business, that that itself is a pretty good indicator of you're an employee of that business. So they identify that tension. And I've read that the, um, that the TWU that was running this on behalf of Ms Gupta is uh, contemplating commencing proceedings in the federal court. I think they refer to it as an appeal, but lawyers would know it as prerogative relief proceeding to, to set aside this decision on the basis of error. And no doubt they'll be focusing very much on the first conclusion that Paul Bench reached, that this person was not conducting her own business. She was working for Uber to say, well, it must follow that she was uh, she was an employee of it. There'll be a difficulty if they wanted to run that point as the significant or the major point, because there are many decisions now that confirm that this proposition of running your own business is only one of the indicia or one of the factors that are taken into account. I know that some decisions try and elevate that as being the, the determining factor, but it's clear it's only one of them. Well, I think, uh, it, I think it goes a bit further than that, Jamie. Well, it's obviously critically, and uh, has been since Holson Barbie, a critical question of whether the person is running their own business. You're not seriously suggesting that that's on equal footing with whether they're wearing an Uber T-shirt or not. It's one of the factors, and the cases always say, <laughs> but it's always don't elevated. The cases say don't just use a checklist approach. It's a multifactorial synthesis with certain things, including practical reality, being more important. Yes, precisely, because it's an evaluative decision <laughs> where this is one of the factors. It's elevated for those, in my experience, in arguments trying to advance the fact that someone's an employee to demonstrate they're not running their own business. But that tends to be, that argument is elevated in cases like the cleaners I was talking about before, where you have someone who was working as a cleaner, was is then by their employer offered the fabulous opportunity to become an independent contractor. In reality, has no choice but to take a serious financial hit. And obviously, not only isn't running their business, but is the kind of worker who is functionally incapable of running their own business. I mean, that is of tremendous significance. Yes, and all one can... To the nature so, of the relationship, which is the fundamental question. Absolutely, because it's diverting the tension from the fundamental question, are they an employee or not? The question isn't, are they running their own business? It might indicate one way or the other whether they are or they're not, 
But at the end of the day, the question is, are they an employee or not? And that's something that the courts and the tribunals have to consider in that determination. Now, let me come back to that issue that I said I thought was significant, that Uber had lost, at least before the majority of this bench, their primary argument that there wasn't actually a contract for work to be done between Uber and the driver. Now, to me, that has potential significance because whilst it didn't ultimately mean that Ms Gupta was an employee, it does perhaps open up the potential for a legislative response. Now, it depends on whether the legislature is interested in a legislative response, but if they actually thought that there was a desire to regulate the gig economy, any piece of legislation necessarily needs to focus on some contractual relationship of some sort. And uh, I don't know, what do you think? It seems to me that there's some potential significance to this, to that aspect. It gives a, a hook for legislation to hang on. I think the important point you make there is whether there is any legislative appetite to regulate this area. There's been plenty of examples coming before this case where unions on behalf of the workers have been indicating how the workers are disadvantaged in this particular relationship and that hasn't at the moment seemed to have elicited too much traction within the, the government of the day. It's possible that this could indicate that. It might depend upon what the full court says about the relationship and observations made in that respect. There may be in the contemporary context more appetite given that it seems apparent the legislature is about to embark on a whole-scale review of uh, what a casual is and regulating that form of employment. This, is, this question is so connected to that, and in, in some industries the terms are indeed used interchangeably, including mining, where all the controversy about casuals is coming up to begin with. So that might be a trigger point. And, I mean, I think there, there has been relatively recent legislative reform dealing with this. The concept of dependent contractors for the purposes of superannuation is one. So the, the issue is regulated in certain ways, which just means you don't have to resolve the question of whether someone's an employee if they're working for you for 90% of the time, the superannuation obligation arises anyway. So it sort of just cuts out this complicated legal argument. But even aside from new legislative response, there's sort of a world of opportunity in the New South Wales Industrial Relations Act, which if there's a contract of carriage, suddenly the New South Wales Commission, perhaps to its own surprise, would have jurisdiction to do any number of things in respect of these employees wage determinations, contract reinstatements, compensation. It's not a section, Chapter 6 that has seen much action recently, but it is still in the act and it is more powerful than people think. Gotta go, gotta see things. See new places and brand new things. Gotta go places and do things. Maybe to forget I'm talking to a mate of mine, Frank Hicks, who's also a member of Greenway Chambers, about a bucket list trip that he undertook last August when he went to England to watch a number of test matches on the Ashes Tour. Now, I know Frank did this because I was also there for part of the trip and I got to see a few days play at Lords. And while I was there, I caught up with Frank. Hi, Frank. G'day, Ian. How are you? I'm well. I'm well. Now, Frank, you're obviously a cricket fan. Was this the first time you've been to the UK to see an Ashes test? No, I went many, many years ago in 1993 for the tour following the 1989 breakthrough tour. Uh, 1993 was Shane Warne's tour, the ball of the century, although I wasn't there for that test match. 
But I did go to Lords and see a couple of days play there. However, given the price of tickets and the fact that I was backpacking around after having just completed my law degree, uh, two days was all that I could afford. Yeah, it's not cheap, but it's a serious experience. It's a fantastic uh, place to watch cricket. It's such a small and intimate ground. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Lords is probably one of the larger grounds there, and it's small both in terms of the number of people it can hold and indeed the size of the, the ground. And of course, it's got the famous slope. Yeah, yeah. Now, how did the experience, do you think, uh, compare to, say, the, the day you were on staff at the Australian cricket team uh, during the Sydney test that time? Uh, well, it's obviously a completely different experience being inside the dressing rooms as I was back in 2004. I paid a lot of money to a charity event to be John Buchanan's assistant coach back at a time before I was at the bar or married and therefore had a lot more disposable income. England's a fantastic place to watch cricket. Lords and Leeds are very different places, obviously, not just geographically or, or uh, demographically, but in character as well. Uh, at Lords, obviously, there tends to be a lot more for formality or seriousness taken. It's a very posh part of London and uh, uh, very restrained in terms of their support, although there was still a degree of booing and jeering for the uh, villains of the piece from South Africa, Steve Smith and David Warner, uh, but it was far more raucous and vocal at Leeds, I can tell you that. You know, just prior to the Lord's Test, my wife and I, uh, my wife's a genuine cricket tragic, uh, we were lucky enough to be invited to the Allen and Unwin Ashes party at the Lord's Pavilion on the Friday evening before the test started, and our host, during a speech, said that England had um, found a chink in Steve Smith's armour they had identified that he gets into the jitters when he when he's in the 170s. <laughs> so uh, Smith was obviously, he had a great tour, but who was the player of the series in your mind? Oh, I think undoubtedly you would have to say the player of the series was Steve Smith. Uh, his runs were really the difference between the teams uh, at the end of the day and his effectiveness, particularly compared with Joe Root for England, uh, clearly allowed Australia to retain the ashes. I thought... Both bowling attacks were outstanding. Uh, Stuart Broad was getting David Warner out for fun. Uh, he averaged nine, and uh, most of that was related to a single score of 61 that I saw him get at Leeds, where he should have been out at least 25 times, given the number of occasions that Broad beat the bat. Uh, as far as the uh, players otherwise are concerned, I thought the Australian bowling attack was outstanding. Uh, Pat Cummins and uh, Josh Hazelwood uh, were so impressive, particularly uh, at Leeds and in the win at uh, uh, Old Trafford at Manchester. Uh, they really uh, made so much of the difference and indeed compensated for the lack of runs being put on the board for Australia, but for uh, one Stephen Smith. Well, one of the things that made the tour fairly unique was the position that the Australian cricket team had found itself in after the sandpaper gate. How do you think that affected the dynamics of the tour? Well, I think because the Ashes came after the World Cup, there had been a lot of the pressure or uh, steam released in respect of those antics because of the way the Australian one-day side uh, was treated and jeered uh, throughout that World Cup process, or World Cup campaign, I should say. So when it came to the Ashes, although it was Australia v England and there was a little bit more focus in that regard, it uh, perhaps hadn't 
the currency that it might have had had this been the only or first occasion the Australians had appeared on the cricket field. I also think that uh, David Warner did an excellent job at uh, Edgbaston when he was copping a, a real degree of flack over the whole thing, when he turned his pockets out and smiled at the crowd. Uh, I think that really uh, took the edge off a lot of it. And uh, the English crowds, they're always up for the, uh, the fight, up for the, uh, the chanting and all those kind of things. But they certainly do appreciate it if the players play along uh, or at least engage with them. And they can become very supportive. I mean, they just regard it as part of the game or part of the attendance, I suppose, a bit like the way Australians regard sledging as part of the game. Well, it's not only the players who played along. You were up at Leeds and um, understand that you got a fairly good reception from the locals when, you, when they realised that you are an Australian. Yeah, well, that was fairly easy to pick, given that I was sitting there in a green and gold cap. Uh, but uh, I went to three days at Leeds. Two days I was in um, the stand, uh, which uh, is at the bowler's end, uh, next to the rugby league ground. But I had one day in what's described as the Western Terrace, which is the Headingley equivalent of the old Bay 13 at the MCG or the Hill at the SCG. And... Uh, I was there on my own uh, and I was sitting fairly close to the boundary and every so often I would hear a low roar starting to gather uh, and I would turn around and I would be presented with a piece of sandpaper. Uh, I ended up with a collection of uh, over 25 pieces of sand, sandpaper together with a full uh, package selection of sandpaper from one of uh, the UK's finest hardware stores. Uh, I've got all of those items in my chamber and they take pride of place along with any other number of trophies I've picked up along the way. Uh, but by the end of the day, we were drinking beers and we were having fun. And it was day two when Australia rolled England for 76. So I really had a good time. Outstanding. Um, I remember sitting in a pub in Chiswick and watching Steve Smith get struck in the neck. Uh, and I'm pretty sure that the Poms felt genuine sympathy for him. But they must have felt secretly relieved at the prospect of him sitting out a game or two. What do you think they? How do you think they felt when they saw his replacement, Lubbershane, start to hit his strides? I think they were pretty surprised. I, I, yeah, I can imagine. I didn't really speak to any of the English about it, and well, to the extent that I did, they all expressed uh, sorrow and regret that uh, Smith had been struck in the way that he had. I mean, the memories of Philip Hughes are still pretty fresh, even though that was a couple of seasons ago now. Uh, I certainly think they were surprised, as indeed everyone was, that Labuschagne uh, took the uh, reins and took the position as quickly as he did uh, and indeed uh, performed so well. Uh, indeed, at Leeds, I think I recall there was a something of a controversy when Joe Root claimed to have caught him and it appeared that the ball had bounced at least on the videos but then again I suppose whenever you have those close catches and you look at them on the video replay they always look like they've bounced but certainly Labuschagne uh, performed exceedingly well he was uh, Steve Smith's doppelganger uh, for those two tests and I see now that he's been awarded with uh, a contract as the 25 players retained by the ACB uh, whether at, at the expense of Kawaja one-on-one or simply because Kawaja got squeezed out, it's a bit hard to know. But uh, Labuschagne's in and Kawaja's out. Well, was the highlight of the tour, do you think, the extremely long lunch at the uh, on the day that was washed out on day one of the, law, of the Lord's Test? 
It was certainly one of them then. I remember we found Il Barretto, which was a little Italian restaurant there in Marlebon, uh, when we were supposed to be at day one. And I think we, we started about 12.30 and I'm pretty sure we nearly got there for dinner. So it was certainly <laughs> a wonderful time and uh, certainly enjoyed your company and your wife's company. And I think uh, we saw a number of the English fans actually roll in after they'd been at the ground sitting in rain for hours on end. And uh, they certainly looked like they needed to hot toddy to warm themselves up. Yeah, there's a few people sort of keeping an eye on the phone just in, in the hope that the, the rain would suddenly disappear and they'd be able to get some play, but no, not to be, um, unfortunately. Now, in 2024, I think, the planets must be all aligning because uh, during the course of the summer and only over a few months, Europe's going to host Rugby World Cup, Wimbledon, Tour de France, the Ashes and a few other uh, events now that we're all getting used to working remotely and appearing in virtual hearings, is there any reason why we can't pack our robes and iPads and head up, and head over there and set up virtual chambers where uh, too much sport is barely enough? I think it's 2023 and I see absolutely no reason whatsoever that we shouldn't take on the role of strolling council in the same way as they used to have strolling players putting on theatre and we can appear remotely uh, at and from these various sporting events. And uh, I'm very much looking forward to it. And I'm looking forward to taking as many of our colleagues at Greenway and others uh, as we can for uh, that 2023 summer or season of sports. Well, I'm glad you corrected the year because you can imagine how upset I would have been if I'd turn up in 2024 <laughs> only to have heard about how much fun you guys had had the previous year. But, um, I would have talking... texted you asking you where you, where, where you were. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Anyway, well, thanks for talking to me, Frank, and um, no doubt we'll catch up at another cricket game in due course. I'm looking forward to it. I'm certainly looking forward to when all sport has resumed. Thanks, Anne. Thank you for listening to Law Talking. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual and are not representative of Greenway Chambers. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to visit greenway.com.au to access the show notes and for more information on today's speakers.